Welcome at the Coreface. I'm Philippe Rose. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world and beyond the noisy headlines. And we hope a few interesting insights come out. First, a word from the Fletcher School. Register by May 1st for Fletcher Live Online. This is a collection of five week-long courses that give you essential tools to navigate today's global landscape. Engage with world-renowned faculty and enter a global community of fellow leaders, diplomats, CEOs and innovators tackling many of the same challenges as you. Courses include negotiation, strategy and leadership for social impact, economic inclusion, cyber risk, and understanding climate action. See show notes for details. Today, I speak with Perolov Schröder. Perolov and I were classmates on Fletcher School's GMAT program in international affairs. Perolov is an accomplished global senior executive with a career in energy, consultancy and technology, including at Microsoft, and more recently as CEO of Storm Geo, a weather service provider. I love Perloff's multidisciplinary perspective on global issues and leadership so much that we could speak for hours. Hi, Perloff. Great to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Doing well. It's a dark and chilly morning here in Stockholm. <laughs> right. Should we get going? Yeah, I think so. I mean, let's coffee up. As we said, <laughs> let's make sure it becomes a dialogue and a conversation, right? And not too much of a, you know, um, monologue here, because otherwise people would just die of boredom listening to us. <laughs> Yes, and and uh, in the spirit of sharing, uh, actually, as you've given me feedback, I'm trying to be present as well in, in in these conversations and share a bit wherever I wherever I can. <laughs> it's always more interesting to listen to somebody having an enjoyable conversation than somebody just doing an interview, which is a different thing, right? I was trying to picture you in my my head because we've we've had quite a few opportunities to spar intellectually, but also to take casual walks and and have more informal conversations. And I I, I was I realized I was always a bit confused about who, who you are. <laughs> so so because cl- clearly you're a very accomplished, very senior tech executive, although more in business roles actually. And if if I had to to imagine. Uh, Perloff as an animal, in that context, I would visualize you as a, as maybe as a shark or something. <laughs> But then, <laughs> uh, you're, you're also extremely thoughtful and almost a bit professorial sometimes. So, so there, I have more the, the image of a maybe of an owl. Um, and and then, <laughs> I remember Deborah Nutter once you 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 were talking to her, and I overheard your conversation. And you just dropped in the conversation that, oh, I've, I've left Microsoft. I'm now CEO of uh, Storm Geo. And she was like, what? CEO? What? <laughs> and and I, I could see, maybe I overread in her, in her answer, but I could see that she was struggling to reconcile these two images of the shark and the owl. And so <laughs> if, you, if you had to kind of describe you as, a, as, a, as an animal, what, what, 
what would you what would you choose? I've always seen myself more as a koala bear, really. You know, <laughs> so this uh, type of uh, this type of images, uh, you know, uh, uh, might not uh, be the most obvious from my ideal <laughs> sense. But I would have to say, based on the accumulated feedback over the years, I think your feedback is not uh, maybe that totally unexpected, right? I, mean, I think all of us are. So sort of a product of our experiences and the people we've met, the things that we've done and, and our life journey, right? And I think it would be surprising if most people that you meet would be some sort of a combination uh, of things, right? And I think that's what I I probably am as well. Where I am today, uh, if we start from that point of view, I am uh, living in Stockholm uh, since a few years back, uh, working now as an independent advisor, um, investor as well um so, so certainly since the since the onset of this covid thing i've decided to take a, a little bit more different role less focus on the executive operating roles and more advisory work working for um, leading pe companies investment banks and some strategy consultancies and that's been a very interesting um, change of career if you like it sort of goes back to where i started my career which was very much uh, management consulting, where you work, uh, you, you hop from one client to the next and you work on projects. Very intense for uh, anywhere from six, seven weeks, so all the way up to maybe 12, 15 months. So in that sense, it's been like a, a going full circle here for me. And, and, and also you see the benefit of having uh, had a, what I would call a portfolio career. Maybe could you share a little bit about how, how did you decide to 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 start off in management consultancy um like what attracted you to it what were you setting off to to do and were you already um kind of zooming in on tech or how, how did your uh, how did you how did your journey take you into tech yeah i mean uh, if tech if you mean tech in the sense of um, communications or it Actually, that was quite uh, later on in my career. Yeah, yeah. I am, uh, as you, I actually started my career in the petroleum industry. I'm a petroleum engineer. Yeah. Um, and uh, actually had my first um, jobs in the oil industry as a summer drilling operation engineer with uh, Statoil in Norway, working on drilling offshore wells uh, in the Barents Sea. Um, <laughs> I did that every summer during my uh, university studies. But then um, just finishing up my degree in, at Texas A&M, which I was at the time, um, I had this idea of, well, I really quite enjoy the academic environment and maybe I should just continue to study. So I applied to a few business schools. It's not that easy to get in without work experience, but I was able to sort of capitalize on my, uh, my yeah. uh, Norwegian Air Force national service experience, my summer job experience, to more or less talk myself into a London business school. So oh, I spent yeah. uh, two years there uh, doing my MBA. And, and as you know, um, the easy career, the easy career choice after having done an MBA is uh, either investment yeah. banking or uh, strategy consulting. So following a summer job with a, with a U.S. Uh, consulting company, I was offered a full-time job after that and, and off I went. So I wouldn't say there was any type of plan. It just happened, which, yeah. by yeah. the way, I think... You know, uh, certainly for my career, there are very few things that have been planned. I, I'm a strong believer in that, that things come to you in life, right? You have to be ready. You have to take the opportunity. 
But as far as having a career plan, no, that's never been in the cards for me. It's just things have just yeah. happened, more or less. Yeah, and no, I, I guess I have to echo what you're saying uh, as well from from my my side. I mean, we both started off in the energy industry, although I didn't have a technical background. I, I had a, a business background up up front, and uh, essentially, I, I I actually chose the energy industry and oil and gas in particular. Um, I always had this fascination with it from my um, from my childhood. Actually, uh, reading Tintin, the Black Gold, yeah, uh, and and uh, and being mesmerized by 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 this uh, this industry that that uh, pervades every aspect of our of our life and seems to be associated with the rise and fall of empires and things. <laughs> so, and I, as you said, the, the 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 challenge I had was actually at the time. I had a choice. Most of my friends went into management consultancy and investment banking, but I, I was quite keen to uh, to roll up my sleeves and, and have a, a real experience of, of the real world, uh, hmm. seeing and touching things. Um, and uh, I also thought that this experience would would let me uh, uh, travel and, and live and work in many places. Uh, so so th- that, that's a little bit how I started and how I uh, jumped on opportunities as they came up uh, w- without any career master plan. Actually, <laughs> that's how it happened. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that this is a this is a nice to, nice to hear, and it certainly resonates with me. So, you know, if we look at the, the in my consulting experience, that it was quite in in the beginning at least quite heavily focused on, you know, the tech. If you talk about the tech or technology areas that I was comfortable in. Um, so chemicals, I did a lot of work in petrochemicals industry. In fact, the first job uh, I did, you might uh, find interesting, is I actually did a techno-economic feasibility study for the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. They wanted to diversify into crackers. Wow, yeah. And in those days, a cracker complex would cost yeah, easily a billion dollars. And if you, yeah. can, if you consider you know, all the downstream plants and poly, polyethylene, polypropylene, and all these uh, derivatives that you have from from the chemicals um, industry and value chain, you realize some of these uh, some of these complexes can be very big, and you get re- and then as you say, you get actually exposed because you cannot do an analysis like that without considering the global picture. You yeah. very quickly get into the fundamental laws of supply and demand for product. You understand all the various end markets, which is tremendous. Many people don't realize how many of your daily products all the things that you use is actually based on, on based on yeah, the chemicals industry not to be evangelical here about the industry which is going through a tough uh, rough patch but i think uh, you know the world wouldn't be uh, where it is today if it weren't for the tremendous contribution from the oil the chemicals um, the materials industry i would say over the past 60 70 years it's been nothing short of absolutely dramatic i would say right you you were looking at it purely from a from a perspective of of um, the, the reach of the industry or also from from a were you starting to develop an interest in the political aspects as well like like the, the fact that um uh, there's a number of countries whose whose uh, main source of income is is uh, is hydrocarbons and therefore uh, it drives some of the yeah. decisions some of the structures absolutely. like no this is the interesting thing right so i was uh, Following on from that initial engagement, I was actually six months into the job that this interesting opportunity came up with a sort of on-site or residential consulting opportunity with Sabic or the yeah. Saudi Basic Industries Corporation, which is the second largest major corporation in Saudi Arabia, which is responsible for all the downstream operations 
you know, based on the associated gas that that uh, that yeah. is produced with oil operations or Aramco, they they are responsible for industrialization and the downstream activities. And of course, there um, I was 27 at the time. I was yeah. <laughs> I still remember I, I arrived in the office with the CEO Ibrahim bin Salama reporting directly to the Minister of, of Industry <laughs> there in Saudi, and he was looking at me and he said, "Well, what are you, <laughs> what are you going to do here? Well, I'm going to be the I'm going to be the consultant in corporate planning. And he, I think he was scratching his head and was wondering, how can a 27-year-old guy <laughs> straight out of school basically be advising us on a long-range plan, right? Luckily, I had with me, my sidekick was um, a former CEO from Exxon in, in Europe, very yeah. seasoned, now 60 years plus uh, age. And, and so we were sort of an interesting combination of skills. But I, but I learned afterwards, I mean, my bosses didn't say it to me at the time, but they told me that the, there were some interesting discussions after I arrived, actually wanted to send me home. Because <laughs> in their world, right, it was impossible that they could actually take, that I could have the experience and, and ability yeah, to yeah. help them chart their future strategy. Yeah. Uh, I did, however, have to say this, I got my own back because a year after I've been there, they actually made it a condition for contract renewal that I stayed on. Right. Oh so, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, interesting. Yeah. But but uh, getting back to it, I think that the the the, the interesting thing is when you get um, get involved with a country which is uh, such um, it has such an unequal balance in terms of the assets and the capabilities that they have to offer to the global economy. Uh, of course, then uh, Saudi Arabia was a relatively uh, small population, still is today. Um, huge advantage because of the cheap gas, you know, which is one fifth of what you yeah. typically would pay um, uh, in more developed market. But then very limited um, skill set, right, in terms of yeah. marketing strategy operations. So this was a, basically a agglomeration of, of fourteen different joint ventures with Exxon, Mobile, the Japanese major players, Lucky, you know, and you name it. So our job was essentially to try to help them you know, stake out their own destiny and not only be a strategy taker from all these global multinationals they had invited mm-hmm. in who were who had the capital, had the know-how, had the skills. But of course, from a Saudi point of view, they had important national objectives in terms of what they call Saudiization. Yeah, yeah. So developing the skills of the workforce. And then uh, as part of my job, I also got uh, the assignment to, to help um, up their ability with economic analysis, strategy analysis. I had four or five people working for me in the corporate planning department, which which I had to sort of bring up to speed on the modern strategic planning techniques and so on. So tremendous start in my career. And it was very, very different from anything I had imagined and certainly wasn't planned to get back to that thing. Yeah, yeah. I had an experience in Saudi Arabia. I think it was, it was a number of years after you. Obviously, uh, I, I moved to Saudi in 2011, uh, just uh, as the Arab Spring was uh, uh, was becoming uh, the, uh, more problematic, especially in in Bahrain, which was clamping down quite a lot on on um, demonstrations and things like that. And um, there, I think. So, so I had been in in the industry for uh, six, seven years, and I realized, like, the start of my my work in in Saudi was the the, the a little bit the turning point in my head, where up until that point, I, th- I think we were considering, or I was considering, 
our relationships with the state, the state, the government, as as dealing with a black box. And uh, the project I was involved in was a the, the very first uh, partnership between uh, international company and and and, uh, and and Saudi on developing hydrocarbons. This is a very very difficult gas project, and uh, the decision to go ahead with the project hinged on on. Uh, the government agreeing uh, a, a gas price uh, hmm. that would make the project fly, and it, it's during this period that I realised that this, there was a lot of political dynamics at play that influenced whether this gas price could be changed or not. Yeah, and and this had more to do with politics than economics, hmm. and that's when I realised, oh my god. I've been working in this industry that depends so much on on what governments do because governments are our partners that actually I just don't understand how they work. And that was the the desire for me to to then uh, embark on this uh, Fletcher program, and and literally months later I, I moved to uh, to Iraq where political factors were were actually crucial in determining what we what we did. Yeah, no, I think this is a, this is an interesting point to explore a little bit because, you know, in some of our previous discussions, you you asked me, you know, uh, relating to the the program that we did at Tufts and how do you how do you see the interplay between the public and the private sector, and uh, what was my perception on how the public sector? Many of our colleagues, of course, were public sector people, which is a, it's a great uh, great experience for me for working and studying with them. Uh, but how they view um, the private sector. And sometimes I feel that there is an, an underestimation on part of the public sector in terms of the political complexities that you get in in the private sector. Uh, you know, especially today, if you look at all the reg- regulatory aspects you have to deal with and the ESG movement, all the complex stakeholders you have to deal with. If you're a CEO today, you know, that is not a trivial exercise in terms of it's not only delivering on the P&L, but you have to manage a board, you have to manage a board composition, you have to manage both internal and external stakeholders. And depending on what industry you're in, you will be subject to more or less pressure there in terms of satisfying um, um, all kinds of, um, of requirements to meet to meet the, uh, the ESG regime, as we call it today, or environmental, social, and governance aspects. So to me, I think um, the really interesting thing today is, is how the public um, sphere and the private sphere is becoming more and more intertwined. Yeah, yeah. And I actually consider it a really good thing because I'm a big believer in, in this notion of public-private uh, partnership yeah, yeah. in terms of addressing and solving the issues that we face today. This is not... Uh, the public sector obviously don't have the skills and expertise to, to handle it on their own, and the private sector has the skills, but maybe not necessarily the incentives and the capabilities and the and the know-how to engage effectively with the public sector. Uh, but we've had wonderful examples in the past of how this has happened. Well, you can say, in fact, a great example, I mean, the whole of Silicon Valley wouldn't happen if it had been for the Apollo program. Just yeah. a thought like this, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you look at Apple, the Microsoft, and all these companies, they actually spawned out of a massive public investment programs related to the Apollo programs and others, right? So... You know, we're sort of also getting back to the future in a way that there is a public-private partnership idea is something that hopefully we're going to see a lot more of, maybe not exactly in the shape that we had before, 
but then, but we're going to have to think of new ways and forms to collaborate to to have drive uh, this tremendous uh, the agenda that we have now to face some of those tremendous challenges we have with climate um, and so on. So, what's what's your view in a way like like after after your decades of career in in, in technology, looking at um, the importance of industrial policy or national technology strategy, because um, if you if you look at the the, the uh, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, and all that, they 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 all have slightly different takes about the relationship that they want to have with the government. Uh, wh- whether there's an alignment in in strategic priorities or w- whether they believe in, I think Ian Bremer talks about techno utopians in his uh, foreign affairs article recently. What do you make of it? Well, what I make of it, I think first and foremost is technology industry. As, as you know, I spent more than 15 years of my career at Microsoft and before at IBM. So I've had the privilege of seeing the industry over the past 15 to 20 years, how it's grown and developed. And if you look at the, there are many things that you pull out there, but I would say the two critical things that has happened is the advent of the, the, the software as a service type uh, industry and and then, of course, related to that platform as a service and infrastructure as a service, where Microsoft and Amazon has been driving this, uh, and Google, driving this massive um, trend towards cloud computing. Um, this, of course, has, has opened up big, big opportunities that you didn't have before. It's drawn down costs a lot, but it also has, has caused a number of, of interesting regulatory issues. Just to give you one yeah. example, when we um, tried to... Um, convince uh, Barilla, Barilla is the pasta company yes. in Italy, to move all their operations into the cloud. And uh, it was one of the first engagements we did in Microsoft. Um, and they were all, you know, very keen. Yeah, let's do this. They were a trusted Microsoft client for many years. But then uh, we suddenly run into problems with the HR department. Say, hang on, wait a minute. There is no way we can, but because of Italian law, we cannot put our sensitive human resources data into the cloud. Just forget about it. It's not going to happen, right? So early on, we had to actually make sort of hybrid installations. We had part of the solutions on-premise, like as yeah. you have the normal server infrastructure, and part of it in the cloud or in our data centers at Microsoft. And that was in the early days. And this has now evolved to being, we thought we would get away with having just two major data centers in Europe, one in, in Ireland and another one, basically mirroring that in Amsterdam. Uh, and we thought that was going to be the optimum solution for the whole of Europe. Uh, and today, as you see, we almost have, we have those two huge ones, but then we also have local regional data, data centers in almost every country in Europe. To, to meet local regulations. To, to meet local regulations. And Crazy. I think that's, that's just an example of where, as a tech industry, yeah, it's great to be uh, visionary and it's great to be, you want to move uh, at a quick, quick speed and so on, and you can demonstrate the value and all that. But every now and then you have to pause and reflect, you know, and actually take uh, take uh, stock of the fact that there's certain things you cannot do. Right? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, you know, this, um, these trends has facilitated a revolution, created an enormous amount of opportunities. Uh, and then, of course, you have the artificial intelligence uh, coming on top of that, which has been, as you know, facilitated by very much by cloud computing and the other major thing, many people don't realize this, but the graphics processing units or the GPU, the, the stuff that's developed for gamers, has yeah, been a critical yeah. aspect of facilitating artificial intelligence in the way we show it today, opening up enormous opportunities in what you can do with big data. 
Yeah. Then again, this is an area where, where there's a lot of discussion and a lot of hype. Uh, and and I would say rightly, right, uh, a lot of discussions about ethics. What does it mean, for example, when somebody gets a, a credit score what, uh, from uh, from a bank? What does it mean when somebody gets refused a certain insurance um, from an insurance company? In many cases, based on some sort of an obscure algorithm in there. Uh, and then, of course, the insurance companies often get the question: How do you how do you actually arrive at the results. And the interesting thing is that many times they can't actually say because the algorithm is sort of a black <laughs> box. You can't reverse engineer it, right? And that raises and it, all kinds of questions about accountability. Um, and is, and it, also, is it also fair to say, because this yeah. is something that is is that I'm only recently becoming aware of getting understanding. Yeah. And it's like when we talk about cloud computing, we talk actually about way, 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 way more than that. Like yeah. the services that the cloud companies offer their customers is is actually cloud computing is is kind of level level one or level zero. But actually, there's a myriad of other things that are bought onto that or that are offered, where like, like all kinds of analytics, AI, and all of that that actually enable the customers understand their own businesses better. Um, yeah. And to some extent, uh, it's enabling companies like AWS and, and, and Microsoft to to yeah to understand their customers' business best better than the customers themselves in a way. Yeah, no, it's true, and all that is is, is goodness, and I think it's wonderful. And anything from so like natural language processing to to translation programs, real time as you see on screens, fantastic things. So I think this is all goodness, and it's all great for the global economy, and it's all uh, wonderful for humankind. I would say. But I would say the, the 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 flip side of the coin. But is is that is that true though? Because mm-hmm. in a, in a, in a way, it's 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 concentrating the 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 value and the insights into one or two super large uh, platforms. So where thanks, to, I mean, one of the main criticisms there is like network effects and exponential uh, scale means that the value accrues more and more to the network owner and not not to society, not to the not to the individuals, not not. Is that is that something you you see as as a concern, or like like is there a better model than that? Is is a, is a decentralized infrastructure somehow uh, where value can be can be can accrue to individuals um, uh, th- through tokenization and things like? Is is that is that a better model than the the Microsoft model? I, I, I certainly think um, the model has to evolve. Right, you have the exact analogous discussion now with the major social media companies like Facebook and uh, and others that basically make a living. I mean, you are the product, if you like. If you engage with Facebook, you are the product. You're not paying anything for the service, but you are the product. And by that, I mean, it's the data that Facebook actually collects from all your activities, all the things that you do on the, on the, on the web is basically what they you know, run through their um, um, massive analytics and algorithms and then they basically then sell on to advertisers. That's how they make money. It's been very interesting to listen to the congressional hearings in the U.S., where you had Mark Zuckerberg trying to explain to these uh, senior senators or congressmen, you know, what the, how the business model actually uh, what, it, what it looks like. But anyway, the, the key point here is who owns the data, yeah, and should yeah. you be paid? I mean, since I'm the product, like I'm the product. I'm, I'm not on Facebook, but if I were on Facebook. If I'm the product, I wouldn't get paid because you actually make money 
out of my behavior, as it, as it were, all my interactions feeds into your huge data repository. And wouldn't it be fair for me to somehow be compensated yeah. for that? And I would say, and, you know, getting back to the enterprise discussion, yeah, I mean, many of I, mean, I think uh, the companies out there would have, many of them have very, very tough policies in terms of data ownership. If you look at the cloud, for example, you have you have what you call multi-tenant solutions and you have dedicated tenant solutions, yeah. right? And the multi-tenant solutions, you basically have your data running on the same um, on the same hardware, even if you have logical partitions, and then you can have you can you can have, but you can have even more. You can have a lot more uh, um, safety precautions if you like to keep your data much more severely locked down. That is an option that is offered today by the major cloud providers. Yeah. So there are ways through your own governance and your own policies as a company where you can secure the, not only the integrity of your data, but make sure that you actually own the data and put significant restrictions on how. Microsoft and others can actually use that data. So I would say the problem that you're alluding to for me is more acute when it comes to the uh, the uh, consumer side of things with the social media yeah. platforms. And what what would you say, like as you wrapped up your career in Microsoft, what what ended up kind of the the, the area you were most excited about and the area you were you were most worried about? Like, for, for example, I, I I echo your your point around. This question about who owns the data, but I think it goes beyond that because it's even about uh, who who owns your behavior. Because not now, of course, uh, the algorithm these algorithms are 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 able to to almost nudge and steer uh, where you go, what you do, what you buy. Uh, it, it, it's it it goes into to your sense of of, of self, even. The, 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 no, absolutely. The, yeah. it, it, it's. To, to use a, to be blunt, I mean, it's invasive. That's the right word. It's invasive into the personal sphere. And that's why certainly I am, even if I'm today, I'm probably spending more money than ever in terms of uh, how much money I spend on online subscriptions and all that. And so I am, I'm basically, you know, a huge consumer of online, especially news services and other, um, other interesting things that you have on the web. But I'm very careful I'm very deliberate about um, my cookie settings, um, how I, you know, make sure I keep track of all my security settings, passwords, update, and all that stuff. I think it's very important to be to be aware uh, and, and, and all the time continue to update your uh, your personal intelligence in terms of what is possible, what can you do on your own to improve control over all the, what should I ever call it, data exhaust that you leave yeah. on the web. That other people use to feed their, their their algorithms, but I wanted to to raise another point in terms of the, if you ask my concerns, my concerns would be, uh, apart from this um, earlier problem I mentioned about the lack of reverse engineering capability in terms of being able to opening up the black box and have the you know disentangle the algorithm and see how it solved solved the problem. Another thing is fundamental to the AI is the fact that. It's based on, based on data and masses of data. And all this data, of course, is history, right? True. So all the biases, all the historical things that has happened uh, necessarily gets fed into the algorithm and the algorithm then creates a result out of that. So in a, in a way, if you're not careful, you end up actually institutionalizing all these biases uh, through the algorithms. And then AI actually becomes a self-perpetuating mechanism yeah, yeah. for more bias, if you know what I mean, if you're not careful. And having said that, of course, you have many different types of AI. 
you know, in some cases, you know, you have a much more tight interaction between the, the, the supervisor and the data set. In other cases, you have much less supervision. Uh, and it, it's important to understand the various type, types of AI and not, uh, not only, you know, group them under one heading, thinking that all AI is the same. In fact, uh, AI is 80% data engineering. The algorithm is nice, but it's, it's the data set that, and the quality of that data set that depends the that actually decides the quality of your of your end result. So it's a very big difference from having a very well defined data set which has been cleaned, which has been structured in a nice way. You have what you call um, metadata, which is basically labels of the data, and then you have a, a someone who supervises the modeling. So that person can have a much tighter uh, interaction with the data set and be much more able to explain. The result when the result comes out. At the other end of the spectrum, you have what you call unsupervised learning, where you're basically feeding massive amount of data into into the into the into the computer, and 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 it's the object or the the purpose of the computer to create make sense of it. And there, of course, you don't have the the value of of the labeled data set and so on, and you can have much more obscure results, even if the results can be very good, but it might be much harder. To actually reverse engineer them and, and be able to explain how you get to the results that you got. And then, of course, the third mode would be what I would call reinforcement learning, which is what Google used for their when they developed the self driving car, where you basically more or less re- reward or penalize the algorithm based on mistakes that it makes. There again, you have more interaction with, uh, with the, the modeling. So I would encourage anyone interested in this to, to dig a little bit deeper and go beyond and make sure they have at least a, a logical high-level understanding of what AI is and what is the role of machine learning and the various modes of machine learning. Yeah. That will allow you to take have a much more intelligent discussion if you get faced with a, a situation where you might be the victim of prejudice or bias or whatever it might be. So you talked about ethics and, and, and biases that are built into decision making, like for 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 insurance and things like that. Uh, there's some some thinkers, like you, even uh, for, for example, the, the former Google X uh, head, uh, Mo Gaudat, who, who just came up with this book, Scary Smart. His view is AI as an aggregate is starting to to shape much more and more of individual choices. Uh, to the point that uh, it becomes much harder to distinguish what is what is what is you and, and what what is uh, what is AI, and that um, we we will not be able to 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 stop the rise of a, a super consciousness in a way or or a kind of an in- integrated AI that uh, will be making choices about the direction of humanity. So I must say that before reading the book, I I, I, I was dismissing such such ideas as being uh, kind of science fiction and and uh, and, and silly. But I felt that the book makes quite a compelling case. It's definitely an extraordinarily uh, knowledgeable individual that makes these claims. So, uh, yeah, I'll just uh, if, if you project... It's, 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 getting, it's sort of approaching this idea of singularity, you know, right, where you have a more or less complete merger between man and, and AI, right? And this is what you're referring to there. And I think that's sort of been been sort of a... I wouldn't call it utopian vision, but it's been like a, a vision that's been circ- circulating for the past 10, 20 years. And, and uh, yeah, people have different opinions on how quickly we will arrive there, or will we arrive there, and so on. But I think the important thing is 
rather than trying to to be prescriptive about you know what will be the end state and when will we get there what uh, each and every one of us uh, should do in the meantime is get educated because there's so much noise yeah. out there so much uh, on i wouldn't call it unintelligent but uninformed debate about um, about uh, ai in particular yeah, and, and big data and so on so i think but there's a lot you can do even if you're not an ict specialist you don't have to be an it nerd to understand the logic of how machine learning works at a certain level I mean, take the take the notion of a neural network. What is it? A neural network is just a simplistic model that you try in a computer to model how the brain works and connection between synapses and so on. Anyone can understand that conceptually, right? And you can also understand it probably would be a better network if you keep adding layers and, and then modeling, and then you you basically improve your your algorithm if if the if you figure out there are stronger connections between certain synapses and others. That's essentially how a neural network works with, with some more or less, you know, sophistication. But it's important to understand what you can do and what you cannot do. And it's also very important to understand the, the limitations of the data set. It's very important to understand you can get into situations like what you call overfitting an industry, where you basically keep running the algorithm into absurdum and you get fantastically looking graphs. It looks like they have perfect correlations. But you actually ended up, you know, over-interpreting results and, and, and basically ending up with a false result as a result of, of too much modeling, for example. There are many th- things like this. But you as an individual can do a lot more. I would encourage anyone to um, just read up a little bit. Be like you, the, the books that you refer to, they are very interesting books because a lot of good storytelling in there. Mm-hmm. It becomes alive when you hear the examples. I mean, who's not, for example, who's not interested in weather forecasting? And this mm-hmm. is also a key point of what I did, uh, a key aspect of what I did as a CEO of Storm Geo, right, is uh, providing weather intelligence to to, um, to operations-sensitive uh, industries. And, and that, of course, is based on, on numerical methods or traditional mathematics. But uh, today, there's a, a much more and more elements of artificial intelligence in there uh, that is sort of complementing traditional mathematical methods. And anyone who's interested in, in weather forecasting can easily read up on the key elements of what does it take to develop a weather forecast. It's all about data simulation. It's fascinating. Even if you have only a rudimentary interest in science and physics, I guarantee you will love it if you do that over Christmas. Suddenly, (laughs) you'll be able to have a conversation with somebody who's a data, data scientist. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, is that, so what drew what drew you then to to to, to Storm Geo? Because you, you, I think you you left Microsoft and then it's quite soon after. Yes. No. I actually uh, embarked um, following on from my GMAP experience, which, uh, which I enjoyed immensely. And what mm-hmm. I enjoyed the most was was actually having the time to read and reflect and writing the papers, and just having many years I've been running fairly large organizations. Um, you don't get to, to write. You write a lot of short emails <laughs> or three or four liners. You read a lot of reports, but you don't really, in fairness, have a lot of time to sit down and reflect and write a paper. Like, for example, I wrote uh, early on a paper about the um, state of democracy in Russia. I remember that very well. I wrote a paper about the uh, the fight for the Arctic, right, about in a negotiation yeah, yeah. class. Hugely interesting. So anyway, I got into that in a big way. Really loved the the, the reading and the writing, uh, and uh, so I decided to uh, to um, 
do a sort of a six-month course at United Nations University in Maastricht, sort of a pre-PhD program, which sort of introduces you. It it basically digs deeper into research methods training. Uh, It's all about about evidence-based policy uh, research methods and quantitative and qualitatively. So I did that for six months and I was, um, I, I designed a research program around smart cities. I was about to embark on my PhD. And then, yeah, as I told you earlier, things happen in life. I was approached by this uh, search company who had this fantastic opportunity with Stormgy. It was a PE company who was a little bit stuck, to put it mildly, and I needed to uh, yeah, reinvigorate and, and get growth back into this acquisition that I made a few years back. And initially I said no twice. But then I was persuaded and I ended up commuting from Stockholm to Bergen for a couple of years. And it was a fantastic experience. So what what was drawing you to that? Because it's funny because you'd left an extraordinarily demanding uh, position uh, requiring very different um, skills and very practicing different parts of you. uh, And then you, you, you moved into the world of academia, having an outlet for, for creativity and, but I'm still wondering where were you getting most energy from, and kind of what what drew you back into uh, back, no, back into the crucible. A, this is a very good question, Philip. Right, and, and that also goes back to can you actually plan your career? <laughs> yes. What happens? You know, the thing is, you get torn. So after I done the six months in Maastricht, I really loved it. I did a course in innovation systems technology. Wonderful, wonderful um, experiences. But once I had designed my research program, I presented my research program, you also get a much better insight in what it means to be a researcher, right? Mm, yeah. What it means to be a researcher, to embark on a three, four-year research program, actually, it can be a very lonely existence, right? It's great <laughs> to have the time to reflect, and it's, not, it's absolutely wonderful. But I also am somebody who gets a lot of energy from people. Yeah. Right. If you look back at my career, all the things that we talked about, I mean, working in many different places in the world, working on projects, um, you know, mobilizing a team to take on a complex challenge, you know, the thrill of, uh, of success when you, when you're succeeding and the, and the, the pain of your failures when you fail and all the demands that it puts on you, it makes you come alive in a way that maybe academia cannot offer you in this quite the same way. Yeah. yeah. So I was vulnerable in that period <laughs> they asked me, I, you know, I still loved what I was doing. But then, of course, the picture that was painted to me and when people want to sell an idea to you, <laughs> they sell you the, this idea. And, of course, the, the, I have to say this, though, the great thing about working in a private equity setting, you have a lot of freedom. Uh-huh. I mean, you, you, you really run things the way you, you, you can go very fast, right? So in this case, uh, in a little bit more than two years, I did a technology alliance with the modern major suppliers in India, I traveled twice to Japan. I did three acquisitions. Right? I did wow. one major acquisition in Latin America, two in Europe. Um, I built a whole new data science, science department. We grew the revenue by 50% and we sold it on to a major industrial company. In the end. So, you know, it's awfully, awfully hard work. My family was completely, you know, bewildered in terms of I was never there anymore. Right? <laughs> uh, and, but at the same time, I, I, you, how do you explain these things? It's 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 the thrill. At the end of the day, I'm somebody who loves skiing, downhill skiing. I love biking, but I also love the thrill of, <laughs> of trying to see if I can solve a complex problem in business. And if I were to sort of distill the essence of it, that's what it is. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I share that a lot because I'm 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 also straddling a little bit the two, uh, the uh, the action of business and and as you said, like the thrill of, of pulling something off and the thrill of uh, and and and, and uh, having to deal with 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 the disappointments and 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 failures, even if it's sometimes for quite quite uh, I would say mundane <laughs> mundane things. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I have an endlessly curious mind, and I enjoy uh, also the time and space to to go look uh, anywhere, everywhere, even in directions that have no practical purpose whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's life, though, isn't it? Having, having <laughs> the courage. Having the courage to do that and, 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 and manage, I would say, from a career point of view, I, mean, I have my son now is, a, in, is on exchange with the Seoul National University in Korea. He's normally an engineering student at the Royal Institute of Technology here in Stockholm. And the career advice I give him is pretty much talking from own experiences, which is what I can, can do, is that things come to you in life. Yeah. Right? You have to be ready for them, but things come to you in life. Don't try to be too prescriptive of what you want to do and what job you want to take, but make sure that you are conscious of what you can bring to the party and your skill set and so on. But what, but what you mentioned, I think, is probably the most important of all. You, you have to be genuinely curious. Yeah. If you're not curious, people will not respond to you. They, they we, want we, to work with people who are alive <laughs> and excited about things. But when you were in the trenches in Microsoft and and then yeah. with Storm Geo, to what extent is does purpose come in? Like the sense you're doing something that is impactful to the world, or is that something you maybe post rationalize, or something that maybe influences your your decision to join? But then it's about you know the action on the day. Yeah, no, I think of course uh, you know there are a few of us who are the sort of philosopher kings who are able to real time be able to come up with sort of clear ideas of how you influence society while you're doing it. Yeah. Right? And typically these insights come afterwards. But True. of course, if I look at the 15 years I had with Microsoft, the wonderful thing about working for a company like that is that I had three or four different job titles, but every year was, uh, every year was different. I had a new assignment. The company was changing so rapidly that I had a new assignment, new new game plan, new program plan every year, right? It's a huge amount of variety. And because of the breadth of activity, my, my, in the last seven years of the business, I ran the business um, uh, business productivity and processes business, which is a, about half of Microsoft business in Western Europe. And that business spans all the way from office to the consumer yeah. through, uh, through uh, you know, deep collaboration experience with, with what you call SharePoint server on the backend infrastructure and teams uh, and more advanced analytics. So, you know, you, you have actually a huge spread of activities across the various industrial sectors and across private and public sector. So, of course, not to be immodest, but I mean, it's not, it's not hard to imagine that you would have an impact on people's lives. Yeah, yeah. yeah Forget yeah. that, of course, in some senses. <laughs> If if I were to ask some of your former colleagues like to describe you, like what would they say? Like what, what kind of attributes would they would they would they see in you? Well, what sort of attributes I would see? I mean, I would say you know um, somebody who who um, who likes to get things done, right? I mean, I didn't we didn't talk a lot about my my personal background, early upbringing, but I was actually I'm, I'm Swedish Norwegian, as you know, I grown up partly in Sweden, partly in Norway. And 
And a big part of my upbringing was uh, growing up on a small island offshore Norway on the 62nd degree north. Uh, there's also wow. a town called Olesund. And, and what you do, uh, my father is a master mariner. So I've grown up sort of in a maritime environment where you're basically meant to expect it to pull your weight. And you're basically uh, expected to, uh, to show your chops in the working environment maybe a little bit earlier than what uh, some of the city dwellers do today. So <laughs> from the age of 10, I was working in a fish processing factory. I was age 10. Age 10, but on, on holidays, of course, right? And in the evening, sometimes after school. But um, I actually took a gap year after, uh, before I went to high school, I took a gap year. I think year at the, age 10, my, my, my parents were asking me to empty the dishwasher. I think that's about <laughs> it. <laughs> but I have to tell you this, though, Philip. Uh, before I went to high school, I took a year off. And I worked as a professional fisherman on Greenland, right? On a shrimp uh, wow. trawler, <laughs> oh. uh, which, you know, was one of those formative experiences that sort of makes you who you are, right? You're learning to work as part of a team on a fishing vessel out there in the high seas. I think you 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 become self-reliant. You learn to pull your weight. You learn to um, be accountable and be responsible and, and, and basically also care for others, right? And I think these early formative experiences in your life, and these are my experience and you have yours and, other people have theirs, but these are mine, and that sort of make you who you are, and makes you. Um, it forms your beliefs in a sense that, in terms of how you, what what work life should be like. So getting back to it today and translating that into a more professional environment, yeah, I'm somebody who loves variety, somebody who loves to work on projects and exciting problems, and I like to understand things. So I would be relentless in asking questions. Always trying to understand what is going, on, what is going on. <laughs> Sometimes I've kind of fallen into the trap of flying a little bit too too far ahead of the flag. And if you look at the, some of the feedback you're getting in your performance reviews, well, it's important to have people with you, right? Yeah. If you're leading a large organization, it's great if you think you have a compelling vision and able to convey that in a convincing sense. But it doesn't really matter if you haven't gotten people to really believe in what you're saying and. and and understanding what you're saying, right? And you realize that the, the, one of the largest jobs I had with Microsoft I was running services with 1,500 people spread out all over Europe. You know, you have to be careful that people understand, uh, you know, where how their contribution fits into a whole. So the amount of, of time you have to spend communicating and re-communicating aims and purpose and mission um, the way you intervene when you uh, deal with troubled projects and so on, all uh, uh, is very critical in terms of how you're seen as, as a leader. And, and did I understand right that you, some of the, your feedback you mentioned was like maybe, maybe you were going too far uh, carrying the, the, the flag? Well, I is, mean, is that what you said? It goes, it's part and parcel of the, uh, of the excitement attribute. Right? <laughs> I get them sometimes. My, my wife would be saying to me over lunch on those few occasions I came home and had lunch with her on her working days when we lived in Brussels, she said for the first 20 minutes I was home, she felt I wasn't there, right? <laughs> I, mean, I, had my, I had my own thought sphere from the office uh, home at lunch. And, and that's a little bit how I am. I mean, I get caught up in a problem and sometimes <laughs> I, I lose track of where I am and I need to sort of take a step back and, and land. And you have to be present. You have to be present in the here and now. And you have to make sure 
to have a, a productive dialogue, you have to make sure that the people are are with you. So um, yeah, so it's th- that's been one of my key learnings in my career. Yeah. You know, but at the same time, difference being a personal contributor and being yeah, a leader, true. a larger, you know, organizational leader, you have to be able to modify your behavior. Yeah, you know, spend more time thinking about the needs of others as opposed to your own intellectual gratification and the fun that you're having on the job. Makes sense. But at, at the, yeah, but at the same time, I also know yeah somebody who's very blunt like like not 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 many filters uh definitely not uh when we were together on the on the gmap program <laughs> no but I, I and i i stand for that i think that's also fair feedback but that's also who i am yeah right i believe in straight talk i believe in personal accountability i i'm i believe i really appreciate being around people who who, who, uh, who say what they mean right uh, and of course you can't always do that you you learn to be more careful as you as you as you go uh, as you as from your experience in life and various contexts you're in. But even if I've lived and worked in very many different cultures and speak three or four different languages reasonably well, uh, it's hard to diversify away some of your fundamental aspects of your personality. It's always going to stay with you, right? And yeah, I can yeah. only trust that there's some of the people who who find me. Um, uh, blunt to a fault would also see that uh, basically the i would say in more cases than most the objective is to drive understanding and to drive uh, speed and execution and to drive results you will find out uh, or i'm not sure if you managed a pnl yet in your career but at the end of the day when you become accountable for result you also you don't always have the luxury of the old deliberations that that you would want to have and you have to move fast yeah, and you yeah. have to cut some corners and that's the operational reality that you live in. Uh, but I'm sure you've seen it as a project manager. You cannot always do it in an ideal sense. You have to somehow sometimes cut corners and, and be less than optimal uh, from a communication point of view, for example. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love what you were saying about how, how your, your upbringing kind of shaped you and growing up on on this small island like i've i've also reflected quite a bit on on how my my upbringing has shaped me a little bit um growing up in in geneva but as as uh, as uh, immigrants from the from the uk in small small apartments uh, with with a, with a bit of a sense of uh, so re- rented apartments with always a bit of a sense of uh, uh precariousness and and not not fully not fully belonging to the community which which i've I've had to work on and overcome a little bit uh, over the the years, and that sometimes transpires uh, when I'm in an unfamiliar setting. Actually, but I, I was I was I was keen to uh, yeah to hear a bit more about how it was like growing up where you grew up, and and uh, so you you talk about some of the positives about having to pull your weight, uh, having to, to actually uh, do do some work and roll up your sleeves. What were some maybe some of the things you had to overcome from from uh, from, from that uh, from that upbringing? Um, I, I imagine I don't, I don't know how many people in your in your environment in your in your village left it to to do the kind of uh, highly successful career that you you did. I, I guess that there must have, must not have been that that many. Can you share well, a bit more? I'm sure there were a few. I have to admit I'm not able to I've been able to keep track uh, given the fact that I've been away. For the past uh, 30, uh, 30 years or so, but uh, or th- 30, 40 years, I would say even. But I would say, from in terms of transitions, it was. I mean, I'm, I'm, um, 
I have uh, three brothers, uh, different age. We were different age groups and we moved. When we actually transferred or moved from Gothenburg in Sweden, which is uh, one of the, the second largest city in Sweden, to this small island on the northwest coast of, of Norway, I was seven, right? So when you're seven, you know, when you're a kid like that, the transitions are much easier to manage. Yeah. Yeah. It was much harder for my older brother, who was a teenager, coming from the city of Gothenburg to the island. I think he was also struggling a little bit more with the language aspects or dialect, whatever you call it, because um, he had actually, after all, taken three or four years of schooling in Sweden and, and sp- speaking and writing Swedish, it becomes a much more sensitive thing when you're a young teenager. So in, in that sense, I was lucky because when you're, uh, when you're a kid like that, you immediately uh, you immediately melt in. In fact, you yeah. become an object of interest from the other from the other <laughs> pupils, I would say, because you come from sort of the esoteric guy that comes from big Sweden and so on. So for me, I have only you know, happy memories, in fact, of being more welcome than rather having trouble with some transitioning and being an outsider. I felt pretty much very quickly as an as an insider. In yeah, way, yeah. Right. So, but I, th- I would say it probably would have been very different if I had been in a different age group. I was thinking about my own children now. They're both born in Brussels, lived there. And, went to French school and then we moved to the UK and then we moved to Sweden. So my family has moved around quite a lot. But I've tried to be mindful about moving with my family at at the right times. Uh, When I was, for example, when I left Microsoft, I had um, ongoing job offers to either go to Tokyo, Japan, or go to Canada. But my family basically told me, well, you can go, but we're not going anywhere, (laughs) right? We moved with you five times and on the in 15 years and, and uh, enough is enough. And so for me, for example, I think the job uh, in Toronto with Microsoft was a very attractive one. But the, uh, that stage of my career, going there alone without a family, of course, was a, no, was a no-go. And I think that these are the things you have to, res- you, you can't only think career. Every now and then you have to pause and reflect and, and think about what, what, what would be the uh, you know, total effect on the family uh, of these types of, of moves. And uh, yeah, I'm a believer in, in talking about not planning most things. Those are the things that I think I have planned to a certain degree, at least. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. We, we haven't talked much about the, uh, the experience in the, in the GMAP program. And I'd, I'd love to ask you a little bit about that. What were you, for you, one or two of the highlights and then maybe some of the things you, you, uh, that irritated you or bothered you about it? Yeah, I think I've alluded to previously the, the uh, I mean, I always, always um, enjoyed the academic environment, uh, if you like. I mean, I as long as there's not too much research, right? <laughs> I've, always, I've always, I just enjoyed going to school. From when yeah, I was yeah. a kid, I actually loved history, for example. I loved foreign languages. Yeah. I loved listening to stories, right? And I loved learning about things. So, so for me, uh, at that stage in my career, when I joined GMAP, I've done, I had done most of the executive training at Microsoft, and those trainings are good, wonderful, and suited to your career stage and everything. But you tend to meet the same type of people. You tend to do similar things after a while. So I got an agreement for Microsoft to sponsor me for GMAP, and they were sort of scratching their heads. They were, why do you want to do this, and what's the relevance to us, <laughs> if you like? And that was a kind of a hard sell. <laughs> but I managed to do it because, uh, and I was very happy about that because I, I got exactly what I hoped for. I met a 
very yeah, different yeah. set of people to what I normally meet at Microsoft. And then my third, my, I remember my first group, I had people who were journalists, uh, people working in the public sector, their embassies, um, doing very, very different things from what I was doing. So yeah, from yeah. day one, I said, wow, this is going to be fun. I mean, I have a lot to learn here. It was a really <laughs> eye-opener, right? Yeah, yeah, and I, yeah. so the way I would sort of net it out, you see, I mean, I was much wiser in terms of how the world works after the, that yeah, that, yeah. Uh, that year at uh, GMAP compared to what I was. Uh, yeah, I, 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 echo, I echo that a lot as well. Uh, yeah. I had totally missed how uh, a career in corporate, there is a bit of groupthink, there is a certain way to look at things. And it's actually, it can be quite a narrow way as well. And so I was really uh, blown away by the... the the richness of the diversity that we had in terms of ways of thinking, experiences, backgrounds, life trajectories. And uh, I think contrary to you, I, I never really liked school. Um, <laughs> and uh, my, my university education was, uh, I, I studied in a, in a language that was uh, my, 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 my third, actually. So, so, it was, uh, so I studied in, in German. And uh, it was extremely demanding, and I had uh, almost a rule of thumb: like w w whenever a course or what I was studying became interesting, that's probably when it was no longer uh, relevant for the exam. So, so that was a good sign to stop reading. <laughs> and so, I had very little uh, joy from the studying process. And what I was looking for in GMAP was uh, an American uh, study experience where where I could actually. Uh, go deep and, and follow my curiosity <laughs> yes and, uh, and i would say the academic side of things was also uh, also very interesting from the point of view i mean the courses i enjoy the most i mean i i really loved uh, trade economics with professor kowalczyk for some sort yeah. of highlight uh, thinking of trade when how how complex can that be well actually found trade to be one of the most intricate subject matters at all yeah in the broad context there i really yeah I, I i echo you that as well because yeah. for, this is the first time because i studied trade before it, it's, yeah. at university but this is the first time i i realized there's almost two levels of complexities like once yeah. you master the actual the modeling of trade and the, the trade-offs and all of that then you go into level two which is the uh, the political challenges or the, the 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 fact that for example the wins of an intervention often are very diffuse whereas the, mm. the losses are very focused so it's very very hard for a politician to advocate for uh, the, the the best policy uh, from a size of the the pie uh, because of of the political dynamics and that's that's often why politicians have to go for a second best or third best option so no, exactly. that whole picture was really new yeah. to me. And, and, and of course, all the policy implications and ends up with, you know, discussion around the world trade system and all that. And you realize once you start to peel the onion on that, my God, does the world start to get complicated, right? <laughs> and that, that really was an eye opener for me. And I took away a lot of insights, um, a lot more humility in terms of uh, the problems that some of these trade negotiators have, actually have to solve. Another highlight for me was international law. Uh, delightful to understand. I mean, just I mean, really thrilling to understand the, the origins of international law. For example, as somebody can actually claim a jurisdiction of an area based on facts that happened hundreds of years ago yeah. in terms of where ship boats, you know, sailing boats have passed this, that, or the other, and the, and the fundamental principles of how they have actually grown out of 
case law, in a sense, was fascinating to me. And then, of course, learning about the institutions in the world, how they, the limitations they have, how they've grown up, and how they are fundamental to the world order, and, and understanding how some of them are challenged today. I mean, so yeah. international law, absolutely brilliant class. Security studies, interesting. Political science, also fascinating. So, yes, I mean... It was very enriching from the point of view yeah, of yeah. The, the academic content, but of course also the discussions on the side and the um, the type of um, states that we have in different cities and in Berlin and in uh, 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 Boston and various other True, places. true. Uh, and how, how the program ha- had a, a bit of a magic to it, that uh, mm. through the shared experience, through the shared language and the uh, almost rituals that we went through, there's yeah. this very odd accessibility or, or, or uh, friendship that, that has been created that spans not not just the class, but, but across classes that makes it actually very easy yeah. to to relate even to to people who come from completely different backgrounds and maybe from totally opposite parts of the ideological spectrum as well so i'm quite quite amazed even putting this podcast together how how yeah how 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 welcoming uh people have been to 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 wanting to to come on the on on the show and talk about whether it's bolivarism or, or all kinds of other things like that yeah no, indeed. I mean, um, I've been bringing my children along to reunions. I did the commencement speech in 2016. I brought my son to Boston for that. Oh, I right. brought my daughter to a reunion in Brussels. So they've also been exposed to the community and came away really thrilled, right? So, no, I, I think it's been a great experience. And I, I should also do a, do a, another plug for the program. I think the foreign policy leadership class was a real highlight for me. Someone who's interested in history and also have a big fan of... of I mean, I, I love to read history through the lens of, of political biographies. So for me, that you can imagine that course was like yeah. a, a gift, <laughs> right? You get to read uh, political biographies uh, basically uh, around the clock, and that's what the course is all about, and then trying to draw or extract uh, lessons or leadership lessons from it. Of course, we had a, a wonderful tutor in, in Deborah Nutter, which I think is unparalleled in terms of the the ability and the breadth of perspective and the quality of the discussions. Uh, so that class, uh, to me, was really first class. And then again, if you talk about the, the bridge between private sector and public sector, there's a huge amount that can be learned from the public sector executives and how they manage transitions that are directly translatable to the private yeah, sector. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And in some cases, you might reflect that some of the public sector figures could have done well to have had some training in the private sector before they went on to become yeah. politicians, right? <laughs> and so I'm a big believer, actually, in having a one leg uh, in both yeah. camps, right? Yeah. It's yeah. wonderful. Every now and then you see a, a, or you listen to a politician who's actually had a real job. You can speak with the genuine empathy of somebody who's been there, done that, and at the same time having a sophistication of mind and breadth of perspective to be credible in the public sector, uh, that to me is is compelling, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. huge, uh, hugely beneficial uh, course, uh, enjoyable in its own right from the point of view of enriching understanding of history, but also the way it was taught in a, in a very, very smart way, right levels of abstraction and, and a lot of time to discuss the individual leaders that we that we brought up and and also reading online all the commentary and how people 
how people actually interpreted what they had read <laughs> about Mao, about um, um, Churchill, we had uh, Elizabeth, uh, about Elizabeth the first. That is a pure joy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoyed that as well. I, I was very surprised. Um, uh, yeah, how, how rich uh, and how philosophical the discussion got actually uh, on that. Uh, for, for me, in terms of elements that I could transfer from, from the, the course, I was also quite surprised by uh, the negotiation class. So, so in business, of course, I'd read pretty much all the books that that uh, that we've been asked assigned. But of course, in the political arena, the, the complexity of negotiation is. is probably much greater so, so discovering about track one one and a half uh, some of these uh practices like that i thought was very very uh rich and very useful uh very translatable to to, to business as, as well so how, mm. how to actually uh, build coalitions uh, b- b- between the private sector and, and public sector or even with it within the company that, that that gave me quite a lot of very very useful frameworks mm. You, you, you talked about your, your your kids as well, and so I, what are you encouraging them to to do and think about? Like, but based on all this rich trajectory that you've uh, had, uh, you mentioned about uh, the, the importance of being cognizant of the the political space in which they they are. So, so what are some of the wisdoms that you're trying to to transmit? Well, I'm, I'm, in terms of transmitting wisdom, I would say. It is something I generally try to be a little bit uh, careful about. I think it's uh, there's a lot to be said for from experiencing uh, things for yourself and, and, and gaining your own wisdom, uh, especially when you're young. Mm. So I think maybe the number one thing I've tried to do is to um, ask my kids to be open to the world, right, and to mm. be to be curious, to be pursuing. You know, uh, looking for for whatever interesting things there are. It could be, you know, um, going going skiing with my son in Nisiko in Japan, which we did the last couple of years. Um, to basically, you know, um, you know, learning how to 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 swim, to uh, exploring, helping my daughter, uh, uh, you know, or helping her being a coach and her. The thesis that she wrote uh, related to the topic of uh, female mutilation, for example, she's an oh, wow. anthropologist yeah. by training, right? Hugely interesting for me, very rewarding for me to read a lot of, of papers uh, that she uh, had to go through in her anthropology studies. Um, so I would say more, what I've tried to do in the last few years, which I've had a little bit more time since I left Microsoft, is to become more engaged in their lives. And luckily, I've been able to do it, even if the, my children now are at university, age you can still interact with them because i lost as you can imagine i lost a lot of time mm, when they were yeah. younger i was hardly home and uh, my wife loves to bring this up whenever <laughs> a heated argument which we have every now and then and well you were never there remember so uh, <laughs> i tried to make up for that now the last um, the last few years and 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 the good news is it, it actually works right even if your kids are in their 20s you know, there's still time for those of you out there who's been dedicating your life to your <laughs> career. It's never too late to go back and get really engaged uh, and get engaged in various aspects of, of your children's or lives. <laughs> right. Maybe they, right. Maybe they wouldn't share the same enthusiasm. <laughs> from my perspective, it's been a wonderful experience the last few <laughs> Okay, okay. Perloff, I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I just wanted to, to ask you if there's uh, anything else you, you wanted to, to bring up and, 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 uh, and, and share. 
I think it's we covered a lot of ground here, uh, Philip. So I think I think uh, now I've enjoyed the, the dialogue, and it's very interesting to see the many overlaps that you, you and I have. <laughs> yes, yeah, true. It's uncanny. <laughs> a few years earlier in your career than, than, <laughs> than me, but it's interesting to see when you sort of distill it out. There are many common commonalities <laughs> here, right? And I think maybe that should be the way we end this uh, discussion in the world that we live in today, right? I'm just not preparing. For, um, for going to an alumni meeting at the end of uh, uh, at the beginning of Jan, January Jan, yeah, yeah. in Washington, I'm going to be in a panel there discussing corruption of democracy. Um, and what what I after done a lot of reading the last few weeks and sort of what I'm coming down on is is this: we need to have we much better at, at aligning of interests, right? The way teams work in this world is when interests are aligned. Mm-hmm. Enlightened self-interest has to be the name of the game. And here we have uh, a planet that is burning. Here we have an ongoing pandemic. You know, how can it be that we have the most turbulence in the global order that we've had for many, many decades, seemingly? More disagreements, more uh, problems with aligning our agendas uh, than ever. It seems very strange to me that at this point in time, we shouldn't be able to sit down and agree. Yeah, right. Yeah. So look for commonalities, look for overlaps, look for areas of aligned self-interest, and then the politics will take care of itself. Yeah, maybe that's the role for the, the, the new technology uh, success story to tweak the algorithms to encourage people to be more critical rather than the <laughs> echo chambers, actually. <laughs> Space for your next startup. Maybe uh, one of your private equity friends would, would like to start something like that. <laughs> Could be, yes. Thanks for listening. Please follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from to be the first to know when new episodes come out. Mm-hmm.